0: The Bane Free Radio
1: Hour.
2: On the podcast, graveyard of broken typewriters, desecrated by alien religious nuts who believe using the letter R summons the demon lexicon the malevolent. Tragic
3: unicorn torch nays and refurbished AIs playing chess backwards. Plus, we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of Sharon Lee and Steve Miller's Alliance of Equals, all right now.
2: Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour podcast. It's an honor to have you along. I'm Bain editor Tony Daniel, and I'm editorial assistant Christopher Rocchio. We have an interview with Eric Flint and Mike Resnick this time, talking about their new collaboration, The Gods of Sagittarius. Eric and Mike, who are both incredibly prolific and busy on projects, and really good writers, of course, talk about the book, which is a bit of a science fiction romp, and about how they met and began the collaboration. It's really a a convivial interview.
3: And, of course, we continue with our complete audiobook serialization of Alliance of Equals by Sharon Lee and Steve Miller. So that's coming up. Now, here's the news.
2: There's new fiction and nonfiction at the Bain.com website. Every month on the 15th, we get up some new stuff, and the previous stories go into what are turning into some amazing ebook collections. These are available as free ebook downloads at BainEbooks.com, by the way. The stories are in the free short stories 2017, 2016, whatever, uh, volumes. And the nonfiction articles are in free nonfiction 2017, etc. And you can download those to your e-reader at Bain.com. All formats supported, no matter what the gender of the e-reader power sockets.
3: This month, we have an all-new short story set in the world of science fiction novels Dark Victory and the upcoming Red Vengeance by Brendan Bois. This story is called A Fire on the Hill. Ten years ago, the Creepers invaded, destroying major cities, knocking out all modern technology, and holding major metropolitan centers captive. For twelve-year-old Belinda Kraft, it's the only world she's ever known. Like the rest of the survivors, she and her grandfather get along as best they can, making do on a small farm. Then the fight comes to them. Creepers are advancing on what is left of the United States Army. Belinda may be little more than a child, but in a world torn to shreds by an alien invasion, all must do their duty to help re-establish civilization.
2: We also have an excellent non-fiction piece examining Robert E. Lee's battle strategy by novelist and military historian J.R. Dunn. It's called Robert E. Lee and Decisive Battle, how Lee's strategic thinking is portrayed in The Day After Gettysburg. And The Day After Gettysburg is the um, completion of a novel started by Robert Conroy. And J.R. Dunn finished it up after Conroy's untimely death. And in the book, they imagine a very different turning point to the American Civil War. In this month's essay, uh, J.R. Dunn explores Lee's strengths and weaknesses as a military commander, arguing that Lee was seduced by the Napoleonic philosophy of fighting a decisive battle that settles a matter once and for all. A Fire on the Hill and Robert E. Lee and Decisive Battle are both available. They're on the front page at Bain.com. Welcome Eric Flint and Mike Resnick to the podcast. Hello guys. Eric Flint is a master of alternate history, science fiction with over 3 million books in print. He's the creator of the multiple New York Times bestselling Ring of Fire series, Starting with first novel, 1632, with David Drake, he has written six popular novels in the Belisarius Alternate Roman History Series and and others with David. And David Weber collaborated on uh, with Eric on 1633 and 1634, The Baltic War. And uh, he and uh, David Weber also have the, the three-book series that uh, the latest entry is Cauldron of Ghosts, Crown of Slaves, and uh, the middle one is what?
1: Uh Torture Freedom.
2: Torture Freedom. He's also co authored with Reich Spohr, David Carrico, Katie Wentworth, D- uh, Griffin Barber recently, Dave Freer and many others. Eric's latest solo ring of fire novel is sixteen thirty six, The Ottoman Onslaught. He was for many years a labor union activist and he lives near Chicago, Illinois. Mike Resnick is the all time leading finalist of science fiction judo awards. He's won five times and received I used to teach uh Karen Yaga in my uh, science fiction literature class, by the way, at the um, University of Texas at Dallas. Back when I was teaching, um, he's won five times, received a record thirty-seven nominations. He's also the winner of the Nebula Award and other major awards in the USA, France, Japan, Spain, Catalonia, Croatia, Poland, and and now you've won the award in China, right, Mike? Right,
4: I just won that a couple of months ago. It's called the Galaxy.
2: I, I wanted in competition with everybody except the Chinese for best foreign novel. Uh, what was it for? Yaga. Oh, cool. Yeah. Um, Resnick, but it's Mike, is also the author of, of seventy-five novels, two hundred seventy-five stories, probably more than that now. Um, three screenplays and the editor of many anthologies. His work has been translated into twenty-seven languages, including Chinese. Apparently, he is currently the editor of. Teller Guild Books and Galaxy's Edge magazine. And did I leave anything? I mean, there's no way to get it all in, Mike. Is there anything else recent that, uh, <laughs> that I don't have in there? Uh, but a couple of years ago,
4: Eric and I co-edited Jim Bates Universe.
2: Oh, that's right, yeah. That's where we met. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, I want to ask you about that and uh, how far you guys go back and what, um, what prompted this book. Um, let me talk about the book for a second. Now out at booksellers everywhere is a very cool and amusing science fiction collaboration between Eric Flint and Mike Resnick. It is called *The Gods of Sagittarius*. So, well, maybe we should start with that. Um, how you? How did you meet? How did you decide to uh, to? Was this the first uh, time you've written together, or have you done other things? And what decided? How did you arrive at this book? Uh, the idea for it.
1: together. Well, go ahead, Eric. Yeah, it's a short novella, actually. Uh, we did, we wrote that a few years back, and it was kind of funny, because what happened was, uh, Mike called me up, and he, hey, he'd gotten the, uh, the offer, I, and he asked if I'm here, and I said, sure, and then I totally forgot about it, and then he called me up and said, all right, you know, hey, Eric, this thing's due in two days, and I was leaving <laughs> on a trip, So I said, Mike, I'll wing it and I'll send you half of it tonight, and you know, you finish it. So I did the first half sentence of it. I had everything in there, including kitchen sink, and uh, and he finished it. And it was a lot of fun. And uh, uh, Mike's wife Carol read it, and she couldn't quite tell which one was wrote what. So um, it's always a good sign when you're collaborating with someone. So, we well, went on with that, and then, uh...
2: What was the name of the story? How it came up with It, it was... <laughs> it's called, uh...
1: Mike, you, may, you came up with a title. It's called, it's called a condensed 937-page novel. <laughs> That's the title. It's got kind of a first title. It's called, I forgot what the first word is, but yeah, it's a condensed 987-word title. Word novel. Um, they have a little yeah. to do with Jimmy Hoffa. Yeah, yeah, uh... It takes place in Roswell. Never mind. It's it's, uh, it's a very strange story. But we had a lot of fun with it. And then I don't remember exactly. We, we eventually decided let's take a crack at, at, at collaborating on a novel together. So we developed this outline. Then we didn't work on it. Well, I didn't work on it for years because I had other stuff gotten away. But finally, they would get to it. And um, we designed the book so that there are, two main viewpoint groups of characters, one human, one alien. And Mike wrote the human characters, I wrote the alien characters, till we got toward the end, and then, you know, we blended them together. Um, so that way we could each sort of work separately when, because you know, we're both very busy. Um, and uh, uh, it's a little hard to describe it. It's, it, it, it's, it's kind of it's, it's sort of tongue-in-cheek space opera. I sort of think of it as is Indiana Jones, Galactic Indiana Jones encounters the um, alien on a mission of vengeance. Um and,
2: and um maybe with settlement. It. Um it's it really isn't easy to describe it. Yeah.
1: It's kind of an oddball. No, it is
2: well, it's full of—I mean, it's—it's it's full of inventiveness, and there's a huge amount of wordplay in there, which is incredibly fun, and there's some sense of wonder in there, science fiction. But it seemed to me it's got some definite echoes of um, kind of science fiction humor that we saw a lot of in the in the '70s and '80s, which um, and include books like *Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy*. Um, I don't know if you would you would agree with that comparison. Um, Was that? It's a comparison people come.
1: With. I mean, it, it's, um, you know, it, it's very generic, but yeah, I understand why people uh, come up with it. It's kind of, um, it's not very predictable which way the plot's going to
2: go. Is this, um, is it reflective of you guys' uh, sense of humor, do you think? I mean, it must be to some extent. Well,
1: I would assume
4: it is. Uh, okay. I, I have written, or i say I have gotten away with, more than a hundred funny stories in this field about a
1: dozen funny books and I would never have thought that was possible in any other field <laughs> it's tricky uh, it, 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 it's not quite comedy but it comes awfully close uh, no it, but it, 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 uh, it takes certain things to such an extreme that it becomes kind for example one, one of the basic premises is uh, what if we had a
4: planet called Cthulhu? What does that mean to everybody? Well, it means Lovecraft. And who was Lovecraft's most important character? al Hazred, who one day, at
1: high noon,
4: in the middle of a crowded square, was eaten by an unseen monster in front of everybody. Uh, what if, on this planet Cthulhu, in a prison, something unseen ate one of the prisoners? What if we did that seriously?
2: Not tongue in cheek, except it comes out kind of tongue in cheek. And tried to examine why that happened and what the consequences were. Well, we start on Cthulhu. Um, well, let's maybe talk about some of the characters and then uh, and then try to parse this, <laughs> parse the tale because the characters are fascinating too, the humans and the aliens. It's not. I mean, it's not obviously. It's not a, a jokey book. It's it's got humor in it. But it's got a serious, you know, universe-in-jeopardy kind of uh, kind of narrative to it as well. Um, what about Russell Tabor? We meet him at the start of the novel. He's the security guide. My viewpoint character,
4: uh, he, he's a, a security man, a jack-of-all-trades, but his specialty is uh, saving stupid geniuses from, from their own bullshit. <laughs> And uh, he's been assigned uh, to protect a totally clueless Rupert Chenoy, who is the, the genius uh, that, that has been charged with finding out about uh, the planet uh, Cthulhu and the ancient race there that had once been there called the Old Ones. And uh, it's not an easy job because... Uh, First, you know, he keeps going off on strange tangents, and secondly, an awful lot of these strange tangents happen to be right. That, you know, a guy really was devoured by an invisible creature. There really was a race called the Old Ones, just like Lovecraft said. And uh,
2: they're very dangerous, and his job is to keep this genius alive long enough to figure out what's going on. Yeah, it seemed like that he was, um, that that both of them are sort of the reason they survive even is because they're both kind of polymath generalists in their way. Russell in in a security guy kind of uh, physical fashion, and uh, Chenoy with with you know he just he sees weirdnesses and patterns and things like that, right? Uh, yeah, you have to assume they're they're all going to be you know jacks of all trades. At that point in the galactic history that that we're we're espousing, because you know you come into a different race almost every day. That's uh, a really strange and very populated galaxy out there. And Shanois kind of he's also a Sherlock Holmes type in that he he certain aspects of regular life he just he, he, he doesn't care about that much, right? <laughs> I've always hated people like that myself.
1: <laughs> they think they work very well in literature. Yeah. yeah, well, as long as the trick to it is you don't ever try to explain how their mind works because. No, you, you can't, can't do that. Yeah, uh, so it's just, you know, the reader has to take it off the thing. The thing I found, what I wanted to do with the parts I wrote were. Um, <laughs> um, I wanted to have these aliens have a, a very, very different theology than than humans do. So they think humans are nuts because humans have this idea of a benevolent God where it's obvious to the aliens that whatever deities exist are malevolent. All you got to do is look at the universe. And so their entire way of looking at the world is completely different. Um, from the way human beings look at
2: it, uh, and I, you know, I just found that very amusing. Yeah, there. I mean, you. There are several times they say um, that humans are are just like insanely optimistic and in contrary to all the facts that are. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and
1: I got to keep yeah. going out there.
2: Yeah. Well, tell us about uh, Akko then, uh, Eric. Who he, she? Uh, is an alien sort of explorer and interface. I, I mean, she's, it's hard to say what her position is in human terms. Um, well,
1: she is, her technical title is that she's a castigan. And, uh, basically she's a deep breaker for her. She's an enforcer for her. Sect. I mean, this, this particular alien species is, is, is divided up into a jillion religious sects and denominations. Um, which have one thing in common, which is they all agree that uh, whatever gods exist are obviously inimical um, and but then within that, they each have different um, sort of specific views of it. her own second, I just kind of considered by most of them kind of agnostic and almost heretical. And when the novel starts her, own um, oyster has been completely destroyed. She arrives and discovers that, as far as she knows, everyone's dead, including her three husbands. And, so she sets off on a, a mission of vengeance, and she's convinced that it has to be one of these gods that did it because of a kind of bizarre weaponry being used. Um, and then we go from there.
2: Um, well, can you kind of tell us about the, the setup that there's there's her, and she has this sort of AI familiar thing uh, called Bresk. And there's the Warlock variation drive. Can you tell us about the, especially that drive? Those are some very interesting characters in themselves. Yeah, it's uh, the
1: the the Warlock variation drive, drive is very bizarre. They think initially that it's a uh, propulsion mechanism. It's very strange. It goes back to the to the old ones and the ancient gods. And then, as the novel unfolds, it begin to realize that 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 the world very variation drives actually conscious. Uh, in fact, a lot smarter than they are. Um, but uh, also has a very different sort of I don't know what you call a view of the world. I guess you'd say. Um, so.
2: Um, it won't always do what you want it to do. It won't always do what you
1: want it to, and what, whatever it does do, it's likely to be pretty crazed. Um, so, hey you know, it was a lot of fun work with it. It really was. Um, I, I should point out that the reason the book's structured the way it is, uh, uh, not only uh, with each of us being able to do different parts with, without having to work side by side every day. Well, we started with the humans because they're going to find enough strange things to kind of suck the reader into this future before
2: Eric hits them with the really alien stuff. Mm-hmm. I mean, not not that being eaten alive by, by in, in, invisible aliens isn't pretty alien itself, but but. Eric has no humans and no he really human outlooks among his major characters, so it's much better to kind of gently draw the reader in with the humans we started with, or that I started with before we went to Eric's first section. Yeah, and, the, and it gives us some, because uh, our guys are not, uh, there are no slackers uh, intellectually either, so they're... Um, they're speculating on on the aliens while the aliens are, are sort of satirically, um, yeah, but they're doing it all from
4: a human viewpoint,
2: yeah, in a human background, yeah. Well, what? All right, so what happens on Cthulhu? We 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 enter a Lovecraft world where some some prisoners have um, have been killed. Where does that point them to? Uh, what is what is it that? I um, had The uh, security guy and the genius and another member of their crew land there, and uh, it, nobody believes what what they've heard. I mean, until it happens again, suddenly it's very hard not to believe it. Hmm. And uh, and Anako comes there. Um, they, they, at least they get a glimpse of her, right? Uh, well, you'd have, you'd have to ask Eric about it. Well, doesn't Ako float through at, at that point? They haven't met yet. I'm
1: sorry, say it again.
2: Your character uh, kind of floats through, and, and they see uh, the, the two sets of characters meet for the first time, at least. On. Uh, yeah, they meet accidentally, and actually
1: it's kind of a... The, the time frame is actually reversed. Through, it's hard to describe. It just worked out better that way. Yeah. They they encounter each other, but they don't have any interchange. It's just literally they walk past each other, um, and that's their first encounter. Yeah. And um, um, and then they don't actually meet, start interacting, until much later in the novel. Um, but they do have that first encounter uh, on the on the first planet, So, um, and that, wait a minute. Like I forgot his cool Cornwallis. I can't remember. But anyway, um, so but that's just a glance encounter. I mean, you know, in fact, it's only seen from uh, from the human viewpoint. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, from uh, from. Uh, hang on a second. I gotta I gotta take this call. Hold on I just one. To... Okay. Well, I can, I can take it from there. Sure. Uh, wh- one of the characters, uh, I did one of the
4: aliens, uh, was one, because we needed some answers. I had an alien, I believe his name would, would be pronounced Juma. Oh, uh, he's great. He actually knows, to a great extent, what's going on. And I made him just a, a real sarcastic oh. son of a bitch, but they have to... Up with him because he's the only guy who can give the humans the answers they're seeking.
2: Yeah. Well, this happens on Cornwallis, which is another play. I think. And Cornwallis is uh, maybe my favorite section of the book just because of all the wordplay that's going on there. Oh, um, yeah. It's fun to do. It's not really... They don't even call it that necessarily. They're a little vague here and
4: there answering questions. <laughs> he started writing this in 2009. Uh, we had to put it off for uh, a few years after we began because Eric had open heart surgery and fell way behind on his other assignments. And then more recently, Eric had cancer and fell further behind on some assignments. He'll do anything to get out of writing with me, you see.
1: Yeah, yeah, but we finished the novel before I got the kids. It was the heart surgery that kind of, um, because I lost several months, and then I, you know, I have a busy schedule, and yeah, I mean, and
4: this book was right. a lot of five, fun, books a year. I write three or four. We, we,
1: it just took us forever to get back on track. Yeah. Um. Anyway, yeah, it I think I think that thing went for whatever, like five, six years something like. That. Uh, once we started working on it, it went pretty
2: quickly. Um, oh, yeah. So they, um, Rupert and uh, and and uh, and Tabor meet. um Why? you and, and Faber meet uh Juma who is this incredibly sarcastic octopus thing right <laughs> he was
4: he was fun to do i he's kind of a an alien me.
2: <laughs> he um he's kind of scary in that he actually is kind of deadly but he's he's also um he'd write, if you can keep him interested with words he won't kill you, sort of. Is that the? Well,
1: basically, uh, he w- w- without something like that, like words to interest him, uh, there's no reason why he would let the, the main characters live. So we, we had to, to do something, if not to humanize him, at least to disarm
4: him, and and that did. Yeah. Because that's you know I, none of these people are that I did were so weird imagine that their analogs exist on earth. I mean, not that, that they look like that or have some of those physical characteristics, but, but emotionally, mentally, they're not that far removed from strange people you know.
2: Yeah, sure. Well, you reminded me a bit of a, of, a, of, a, of, a, of a hitman kind of dude that, um, a, a criminal, that um, had a good sense of humor, but was still a criminal Sir? at heart. That's the
1: hitman, yeah, yeah, yeah. And who's it? Which character
4: is this? <laughs> Chuma, the the one uh, who actually knows something about what's going on. Who they, who uh, Shinoy and uh, Ticker find themselves oh. with oh. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Yeah. about halfway through the book or so. Oh. Yeah. So um, and then there's there's this. Uh, uh, the Empire that maybe an empire or may be called mask where um where part of the book may take place uh, it's a pretty dangerous place um why and this is really where akka ako and uh, and the human characters come together what um what's the interaction like why did what why does it take both of them to save the universe <laughs> or... well
1: that was kind of built into the original plot so uh... Yeah, at one uh, point, if if they don't get together
2: and work together, why the hell are we telling both their, their <laughs> stories? Well, there is that. Yeah. Well, uh, yeah. How how do they interact? What's the? Uh, I mean, could. It's not exactly friendship. We wanted, what, what we wanted
1: was humans and alien species that really look at the universe very very differently. Um, in fact, the way the book ends is. Uh, is uh, the healing character he he, he takes a life from the of Casablanca is beginning a beautiful friendship and and, and the alien to me reaction is this some kind of trick I mean, you know, uh, <laughs> to, uh, <clears throat> you know, like they that. really don't look at the world the same way, but they do wind up working together. And that was kind of the way Mike and I planned the thing from the get go. Yeah. There's a lot of
2: um there's a lot of sort of con man stuff going on here. Uh, here and there, throughout the novel, um, putting up a, a front so that um, to, to bluster your way through a the really tricky or sticky situation, right? It's um, it's a lot of the books about how words are more powerful than anything, uh, seems to me. Or is that too portentous or pretentious a statement about it? Well, you would have to think
1: that. A- of writers probably believe that. True yeah. <laughs> enough.
2: Yeah. So um, what, what was the mechanics of writing it? Um, it? It took place, I mean, obviously it took you years of ramping up. Um, well, we each wrote our own parts, I think,
1: what did we do, about six parts before we had to combine? Yeah, yeah, something like that. Something yeah. like
4: that. So, you know, we would tell the other where it was going, and at the end of the part, of course, we'd show it to them, but, uh, you know, we're both so damn busy that uh, once once we had our plot and and our characters,
2: we we didn't swap an awful lot of ideas. and and, uh, We we just each told our own stories because we knew, going in, what we wanted to do and say. Yeah, yeah. Was there any sense that both of you were um, were competing to do kind of the coolest thing or anything? Because I get the sense that you know that that, that playing around with the language was a way of uh, of, of, okay, of of the other guy saying, "Well, you do that. You see, you do this, man," something like that. Or is that uh, not the way it was? Well, we didn't have to do that.
4: Uh, we're both. Very professional, very competent, and we like each other's writing. And we we worked together for for a year. We never had a single disagreement the whole time, three years,
2: whatever it was. We edited that magazine, so mm-hmm. uh, we we didn't have any problems
4: on this. Yeah.
2: So, well, what uh what are what are y'all working on at the present?
4: Well, anybody, how how we wound up doing the magazine
2: together. If you got half a minute, I'll tell you a story. Oh, absolutely, please. Go ahead. Yeah, uh, I uh, I had sold Eric a story, and uh, we were going to
4: the World Con in LA in 2006, and I handed him another story. He bought it at the con, which is unheard of. Uh, you Editors don't go to cons to read submissions. And I mentioned that you know he's doing a hundred thousand words or so. I had edited a ton of anthologies. If you give me a little five thousand word section, I you know every every issue, I, I would take care of it. and Be that much less, less work for him. And we had never met before, and he looks me in the
2: eye and says, "No, you do half the magazine, or it's no deal." <laughs> That's how we became co-editors. Yeah. Well, it sounds like uh, you were birds of a feather from the beginning. <laughs> Is the uh, what what do you think there might be more Flint uh, Resnick collaborations uh, in store, or do you think that this maybe uh maybe was um, the one you wanted to do? Well, in my memory is this was originally going to be a trilogy until
1: it stretched out into six, seven, eight years. What well, it, not exactly. We proposed a trilogy to Tony, but she wanted to take it one book at a time.
2: Uh, well, there's know, clearly what it could go on.
4: Yeah,
1: but we, we went under the assumption nobody was going to turn it down the second or third book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, it'll all depend on Fail, but it always does. But uh, So there
2: may be more. There's it, it, a setup at the end for possibly more, right? Oh,
1: yeah, yeah an easy book to uh, to continue, sure.
2: it's um, a lot of fun. Um what what are you working on, both of you uh, uh separately at the moment?
1: Right now, um I am um well okay I'm wrapping up uh, there's a, a book I'm doing at day sure called All the Plague of Hell that is the next book in the uh, Here's an Alexander series that Dave and I have been working on for years with Misty Lackey. Mm-hmm. Um, now, Dave, Misty's not writing this book. It's just Dave and I. And then Misty and I will write the next one in the series. Um, um, so that's what I'm, I'm, I'm... Dave has finished. He actually turned in uh, the first draft of Lockheed Geez, two years ago, but I, I was tied up with other stuff. So I started working, and I thought I had it finished by now, except the problem is this stupid cancer. I've got the can- The chemo's working fine against the cancer, but the problem is it, it, it depresses my immune system, so I keep getting these stupid-ass infections. And, you know, if so I went to the hospital six days because of a damn abscess developed, and then I was just in the hospital 15 days because I developed pneumonia, um, and none of them are all that serious, but, you know, I mean, if I didn't have a depressed immune system, I'd just short them off, but I can't.
2: That's got to be incredibly, knowing how how much you piece together things and, and just use every moment of your time. That's got to be frustrating for you. It's extremely frustrating, and especially the last stretch.
1: I was in the hospital 15 days, and I felt fine. Uh, you know, I mean, it just, you know, I mean, I knew why they were keeping me there, it's because the problem is, Pneumonia is not really a disease, it's a condition, it's kind of like a generalized inflammation of lungs, and it can be caused by 100, 200 different things. Some of which, like fungal infections, can be really hairy. And um, and it's hard to find out what it is. Um, in fact, we still don't know. It's possible, not likely, but it's still possible with a fungal infection. But it takes about three weeks for the cultures to grow. So I'm feeling fine. The only thing they actually did detect was... Uh, They call mycoplasma, which is walking pneumonia, which is about the the, the mildest form of pneumonia there is. I didn't feel it at all, I'll be honest with you. I felt fine. Um, I developed occasional fever spikes, which I didn't feel. I had a very mild cough. Mostly I was bored stiff, but I couldn't do any work. It's just not really possible in a hospital room to to get much work done. You know, I managed to correct some taste proofs and read a little bit, but. So the point is, I'm, I'm,
2: I have. I'm a little behind on this book. I'm doing. day I should have it finished within two, three weeks. I think we might be able to forgive you. <laughs> a bit. Yeah. Well. Considering the circumstances. So. I'm working with Walter Punt on a new
1: project. And uh, and then once I get all the Plagues of Hell finished, I will start working. I figure I'll start probably July or August uh, on this. The next. Solo 1632 novel will be the sequel to I, I Ottawa Um and, and in the meantime, Chuck Gannon and I are working on a, a book but he's doing most of writing. It, it, it's also a 1632 series. It's called The Vatican Sanction. And it's a follow on on the book we did, uh, The Papal Sticks. Um, and there's a lot of stuff coming. I mean, this year I've, I've got. <laughs> Six new novels coming out more than I've ever had in my whole life. Um, it, it just kind of was a little weird that I had all those slots available. Yeah. And then next year probably about three or four. One of them will be an anthology. The next Gazette draft uh, will be that. So uh, I keep busy. I mean, you know, there's there's no shortage of things that I'm working on. Yeah. Um, no. And um, and then you know. We'll have to see how,
2: you know, what the sales are like of God's Sagittarius, and, you know, if they're good enough, Mike, and I'll keep going on the story. There's no way I know for a while, yeah. Yeah, it sure is. It's fun. Um, Mike... Designed um, so it could work as a standalone, which it does, but, you know. Yeah, yeah, it's certainly readable. It's just a a fun novel. Uh, What what are you working on, uh, Mike Reznan? Well, I'm kind of busy, just like Eric is. I... Just turned 75, and last year I handed in eight books.
4: Uh, Right now I'm in the middle of a uh, trilogy I'm doing for Daw Books. Uh, The trilogy's title is uh, The Dreamscape Trilogy. The three books are The Master of Dreams, The Mistress of Illusions, and The Lord of Nightmares. I'm going to be collaborating with Misty Lackey on a fantasy about horse racing, which is one of my passions. I don't bet, but... For 11 years, I did a weekly column on racing, and I'm going to be collaborating uh, with Jody Lynn Nye on another uh, book, and I've got uh, a collection that, that is complete, but I, uh, Harry the book, it's a Damon Runyon-esque character I've been doing for years, but I have to wait contractually until the last couple of stories come out since I sold first rights to them Together as a book, but sometime later this year I should
2: be able to do that, and uh, that'll hold me through through Christmas. Well, cool. Um, what what else do we might we want to say about uh, Gods of Sagittarius that um, that I haven't uh... want
4: to say? Go out and buy
2: it. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> definitely. Well, it is it's a delightful book, I um, really like the cover art by Stefan Martiniere. Oh yeah, it's got a beautiful cover, really nice. Um, is in hardcover and it's at booksellers everywhere at the moment so uh i guess that uh just think of one more thing i'm doing as a matter of fact i will sure. never see it in all likelihood i'm editing six massive hundred and sixty thousand word reprint anthologies of american writers for the chinese in chinese and i won't be oh, able to read a word of it but i've already delivered the first couple Wow. Uh, Are they, is it short story anthologies or novellas or? Mostly short stories here and there, uh, a novelette. But uh, yeah, it's been a lot of fun and it's a way to bring everybody uh, in it to Chinese attention. And as I say, uh, you know, because I'm dealing with them so much, people assume I speak Chinese. I don't. I (laughs) have to have a nice relationship with this company. Well, do you have, um, is, are they themed or, uh, you got any Flint stories in there? Any what stories? Any Eric Flint stories? I don't believe I have any Eric Flint stories in there yet, but we've still got four books to go. That's uh, 600,000 words. Well, I'll always put it in a word for my favorite Eric uh, story, which is islands.
4: Would like. Me a
1: couple of short stories. I'll sure as hell see that uh, something gets in. All right, Mike. I will, uh, I'll will send you an email. we we'll figure out which ones you might want. Okay. Yeah. I know you to um, see that.
4: Well, the interesting thing is, I choose them, and then they turn down those that they don't think their audience will understand. One of the things I'm finding is, there the the average Chinese on the street doesn't know enough about. Judaism or Christianity to take a story steeped in that, and there's yeah, two. That. Those are just the first
2: two that came to mind. <laughs> so I choose, and then they accept about 75% of what I choose. To explain why they can't do the other. Interesting. Well, that's an amazing, uh, amazing project, and <clears throat> the readership's going to probably be enormous for it. Uh, sounds really cool. Oh. It, it, it's really big out there. What do we draw for the World Cup? About three, four thousand people these days? Never drew ten thousand. Yeah, maybe I've been not. invited to two regional conventions this year in China, one in Shanghai in August that I'm told draws four hundred thousand, all of them English speakers. It's a the whole convention's it. in English. And one in December in Chengdu province, which they expect to draw about hundred thousand people. I mean they dwarf things like comic con yeah, wow well, um <laughs> oh, that's a lot of readers. That's a lot of readers we gotta we gotta do more uh to get stuff in China anyway, uh, well, the book out right now is the Gods of Sagittarius by Eric Flint and Mike Resnick. It's at booksellers everywhere so Eric and uh, and Mike, thank you so much for uh, being here to to talk with us about it. This is another entry in Alliance of Equals, a Lieden Universe novel by Sharon Lee and Steve Miller. Beset by the angry remnants of the Department of the Interior, and challenged at every turn by opportunists on their new homeworld of Sherbleek, and low on funds, Clan Corville desperately needs to reestablish its position as one of the top trading clans in known space. To this end, Master Trader Sean Galen and Corval's premier trade ship, Dutiful Passage, is on a mission to establish new business associations and to build a strong primary route that links well with existing loops and secondary routes. But re-establishing trade and preserving the lives of the few remaining members of the clan aren't all of Corval's problem. Matters come to a head as Dutiful Passage, accustomed to being welcomed and feed at those ports on its call list, finds itself. Denied docking and blacklisting while agents of the DOI mounted armed attacks on others of Corville's traders under the very eyes of Port Security Systems. Traveling with dutiful trader on this unsettling journey is Patty Yosgalen, the master trader's heir and his apprentice. Patty is eager to make up for time lost due to Corville's unpleasantness with the Department of the Interior, but she is also keeping a secret so intense that her coming of age and perhaps her very life is threatened by it. And here is the latest entry in Sharon Lee and Steve Miller's Alliance of Equals.
0: Chapter 2 Dutiful Passage Patty Yosgallen bounced out of the lift and trotted down the long hall toward hydroponics. She was smiling. Dance lessons always left her warm and happy. It wasn't just the exercise, though that was certainly welcome. It was also the knowledge that she was good at Menfriat, which was the name of the defensive art most commonly taught to pilots and other spacers. Of course, she had begun her lessons long before the remove to Runig's Rock and had enjoyed them from the first. It was a particular pleasure to feel one's muscles working cleanly together in quick, sure movements. She had, she thought, slipping into hydroponics, comported herself well during the test session she had just completed with Arms Master Schneider. It was her expectation that she would find a reassignment to a more advanced class on her duty screen tomorrow. That pleased her too. One liked to do well, to excel at whatever one did. Grandfather Lucan said that the drive to excel was at Corval's heart, and Patty believed that he was correct. After all, was it not said that there are fifty high houses, and then there is Corval? Paddy caught her breath, warmth fading a little, as she opened her locker and retrieved her belt kit. For that was a thing said on Liad, which was no longer home, because Corval's name had been struck from the Book of Clans. Now, on Liad, they would say, there are 50 high houses. Now, on Liad, they would say, a dragon does not change its nature which was perfectly correct, and nothing to do with the clan if, if lesser persons failed to take the time to understand the dragon's nature. A chime sounded discreetly, and there came the soft fizzing from the room beyond that meant the misters had come on. Paddy caught her breath, she was going to be late. She threw her belt over her shoulder, slammed the locker door, and half ran to the assignment station. Her hand broke the beam, and she was logged in precisely on time. Sighing, she accessed the duty roster, belting the kit round her waist while she scanned the screen, looking for her name. Finding it near the bottom with the notation, Tank GR2, thinning. She touched the screen, acknowledging receipt of her assignment, and again ran her eye down the list to find who else might be working this shift. Head technician Vareth was in her office, the red triangle that meant do not disturb next to her name. Good, Patty had no desire to disturb the head tech. Fa Chen was listed as on shift in HR6 repair. Paddy grinned. HR6 shared an aisle with GR2. She would have company, agreeable company, this shift. Still grinning, Paddy jogged down the aisle toward her assignment. Fa Chen had only come aboard at Billingston, filling the hole left in the roster by Dinref Deaken's resignation, she was a few standards older than Patty, willing to answer questions and to ask them. Not that either of them would shirk their work, of course, but they might exchange some conversation, and working with Fa Chen was much preferable to sharing a shift and proximity with Inlean, Patty's fellow apprentice, or with head tech Varath. Jerry, the other garden tech, was agreeable enough, but not much given to talk. She turned the corner, and there was a thin woman in green overalls, bent diligently above tank HR6, a toolbox open on the shelf beside her. Fa Chen, she said. I'm glad to see you. The gardener looked up, a ready smile on her face. I'm glad to see you, too, and on time. That was a joke. It might even be a joke with a point turned toward Inlean, who, in Paddy's experience, had never in his life been on time. Only imagine the ringing scold I would earn from the head tech if I were late, Paddy said, pulling the log for GR2. Jerry had marked out the sections that wanted thinning, and in GR3, two sections that needed to be deadheaded. Patty nodded to herself and moved to the first marked section. GR2 was peas, and the first section was, in fact, fearfully overgrown. Paddy dutifully performed the required measurements, testing the medium for moisture and acidity, logged the readings, and finally leaned in to run her fingers lightly over the fragile green seedlings. Thinning was soothing work in its way, though her attention and her care, as well as her hands, had to be in the garden as Tech Verath had it. One needed, first, to observe the segment to be thinned, identifying the robust plants and those that were less so. On the first pass, those plants that were clearly failing would be removed and sacrificed to the composting frames. The second pass would take those seedlings that were somewhat more robust, but still unthrifty, and so on, until only the healthiest and strongest seedlings remained. She hummed as she worked, a wordless little tune she had learned from Grandfather Lucan when they had sheltered in the rock together. The leaves were cool against her fingertips, and her attention was wholly engaged. Do you think she would, Fa Chen asked quietly. Paddy blinked, her fingers fumbling among the seedlings. She raised her head, but Fa Chen was bent over her section, a diagnostic stick in her hand. Paddy frowned, trying to recall her last. Ah, yes, Tech Verith's likely reaction to Paddy being tardy. Despite her determination to do well, Patty had felt from the beginning that Head Tech Varath had taken her in dislike. She had not been able to discover why this was so. At first, she had wondered if there might be some deficiency in her work. But if that were the case, surely the tech would merely have corrected her, instead of barely acknowledging her presence on the increasingly rare occasions when their schedules put them on the same shift. Why wouldn't she scold me, she asked Fa Chen, turning back to the seedlings. She certainly scolds in when he's late. True, but in mother is not the captain of this ship. Paddy blinked, her fingers gone still among the seedlings, wondering what In Lean's lineage had to do with, as your mother is, the captain of this ship, Fa Chen continued, her voice gentle. Paddy looked down at her fingers and moved them among the cool leaves, working deliberately now as she tried to think how best to explain for it was an error of culture that Fa-Chen posited, and a very disturbing conclusion drawn from it. My mother, she said, her voice as careful as her fingers. My mother is Vestin Yos Tomas, Clan Ibrim. She raised her head slightly and saw Fa-Chen pause, her head cocked to one side. She said nothing. Good, Paddy thought. She wants to understand, to learn. Now, she continued, still careful. Now, it is true that Priscilla Mendoza and my father are life mates, but that doesn't. Among Leatons, what that means is that she has come into Clan Corval, our clan. But she's not my mother. She's an elder in clan. Because life mates were understood to have one Melanti, and father was certainly Paddy's elder in clan, as well as Thodelmios Galen. Which meant that Priscilla, too, held a Thodelm's duty. And none of that, Paddy realized, would answer the question that Tek Verath and Fa Chen, too, needed to have answered, and might even confuse the issue. She paused, sorting through necessary and extraneous details; one could not after all teach a whole culture in one day. However, if one separated the involved melantes, one might simplify enough without simplifying too much. What must be understood is that the melante of an elder in clan resides within the clan The ship has its own order of melanti, of command and discipline. On ship, the captain is captain for all the crew and administers discipline with an even hand. The captain of the dutiful passage does not permit crew, any crew, to be slovenly in their work. Somewhat breathless, she paused. Fa Chen had turned away from her work and was watching Paddy closely. Do I explain that well? She asked tentatively. You explained it very well, Fa Chen said, and turned back to the tank. Paddy sighed. She had hoped that she wouldn't have to ask, but she must know. Did you mean me to understand that Tech Vereth would not instruct me, as she might in-lean, because of this- misunderstanding of my relationship with the captain. There followed a long silence, during which Fa Chen had several instruments out of the toolbox. There came a definitive pop from inside the tank and a soft exclamation from the gardener. Patty bit her lip and bent back to her own task, trying to recapture the rhythm of the work. I am, I think, a step over a line, Fa Chen said at last. Let me try to reassure you while not moving any further in the wrong direction. There came another pause. Fa Chen was replacing items into her toolbox, a frown on her round face. Paddy looked down and frowned herself. She had pulled a perfectly healthy seedling rather than the less healthy plant beside it. So much for keeping her mind in the garden. She placed the cold seedlings into the composting tray, then straightened, not willing to risk another life to her inattention. Across the aisle, Fa Chen also straightened and turned to face Paddy. She bowed. Gently, in some mode particular to her own people, in depth it was close enough to the liaden bow between equals, which was not quite exact, Fa Chen being Paddy's senior in years and in training. Still, it would do as a demonstration of goodwill. Paddy bowed in return. Fa Chen smiled. Yes, I think I may say that Head Tech Vereth and I were discussing the operations here in the garden. The tech is pleased with your work and your comportment. The mention of your relationship to Captain Mendoza came as a comparison favorable to yourself while being unfavorable to another of the staff here. She tipped her head. Have I explained that well? so she had compared well to a co-worker. Almost, she could hear Tech Vereth's voice. God's thanked. At least he's not the captain's daughter, and she doesn't stint her work. You have explained well, Paddy told Fa Chen. She thought for a moment. Are you in a position to carry my explanation to Tech Vereth? I am, and I will. Fa Chen said firmly. Also, for my own better understanding, I will speak with the cultural officer. The cultural officer was the librarian, Lena Faldum, who had access to scout tapes and, if necessary, to scouts. May I, Fa Chen asked softly, ask another question in the same direction? Taddy felt her stomach twist a little, foreseeing the question, but it was perfectly reasonable that it be asked. It was, in fact, necessary. Yes, she said, and managed a smile. But quickly, or I will not finish my shift work. Fa Chen smiled. Quickly, then. You are the child of the master trader. Yes, I am. She licked her lips. Again, Melanti comes into the matter. On this ship, I am the Master Trader's apprentice, and anyone who thinks that Master Trader Yos Galen will permit error or sloth from his heir, his apprentice, or anyone who is under his hand, must must not know him very well. Fa Chen laughed. Well said, and now, Having done with my work, I will leave you to yours. I will note in the log that I diverted you to my own purposes, which will placate the head tech, should you not finish. Thank you, Paddy said, but I would really rather finish. Fa Chen smiled. Of course you would, she said. Vivalange prospero. Stopped at Giladi to take on supplies. Leaving those details with Dulcie, the uncle went below to check on their guests. How fare the pilots? she asked when he returned to the galley. Uncle tipped his head, frowning slightly. Progress is satisfactory. He rushes headlong toward waking, while she prefers a more deliberate pace. I have amended his speed somewhat, though more for the comfort of the ship than because I fear he will do himself harm. With such an abundance of pure material, there is very little chance now that he will fail. Still, I would not have him precede her by too many days— Enough so that he might guide her, but yet not so much that he becomes bored, shall I say. Dulcie laughed. A pilot at leisure is a fearsome creature, to be sure. Just so, said Uncle, with a slight smile. And a bored dragon, twelve times more so. There is that. Dulcie acknowledged and used her chin to point at the entertainment's screen. There is a news packet, she said. It might make for an amusing hour. They had, of course, received a news packet as part of the station's service. It would be old news, space being wide, and Giladi not well positioned within it. Still, there was sometimes something of interest in such packets, and they were, as Dulcie said, often amusing. It might, at that, Uncle said. I will brew tea.
2: That was another entry in the complete audiobook serialization of Alliance of Equals by Sharon Lee and Steve Miller. And that's it for the podcast, thanks to
3: podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz. And rock star treatment and a dozen 150% off coupons for the car wash where the Mobius strip of space time is taped together, plus showers of thanks and gratitude to Eric Flint and Mike Resnick, authors of The Gods of Sagittarius.
2: Please join us next time here at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy and keep reaching for the stars.